what will you have? We would be honored if you would join us. Attention all Star Wars fans, this is your host Kyle, and you have stumbled upon the coolest audio show in the galaxy, Star Wars Audio Archives. I hope everyone is doing well out there in the far reaches of space, and I hope you're ready to have some fun, because I have a super fun episode in store for you all. Get ready to blast off into the Star Wars universe as we explore the Old Republic, because last week we immersed ourselves in this adventure, but now it's time to kick it into high gear. This is going to be a wild ride filled with action and excitement. So buckle up and let's explore this galaxy with a smile on our face. Are you ready to have some fun? Then let's go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As Volan and Kibo approached, Aaron realized what she was doing and let her hand fall to her side. She would not fight another Jedi, not ever. Besides, she sensed no hostility in them. She tried to clear the emotion from her face as Volan and Kibo avoided a train of cargo droids and approached her. Volan's brown hair hung loose over bloodshot eyes. He had not shaved, and the circles darkening the skin under his brown eyes pronounced his need for sleep. Aaron imagined she must look much the same. Her own emotional state made it hard to maintain her empathic shields. Both Volan and his Padawan sweated apprehension. It came off them in waves. Hello, Volan. Kivo. Both of them returned her greeting. What are you doing here at this hour, Aaron? Volan asked. For a moment, she had no words. She thought it strange that she had known the question would be coming, yet she had not rehearsed an answer. Perhaps she had not wanted to lie, so she didn't. I'm doing something. Something Master Zala wants me to do. Tension visibly flowed out of Bolin's expression. Relief from both of them flooded Aaron. Then Master Zalo survived the Sith attack, Bolin said, making a fist and grinning. That is wonderful news. I know you have remained close with him. He turned to his Padawan. You see, Kibo? There is hope yet. The Rodian nodded. Nictitating membranes washed his large, dark eyes, the oil moisturizing his pebbly green skin, glistening in the overhead lights. There is always hope, Aaron said, and ignored how false those words sounded to her. She could not bring herself to break their hearts with the truth, let them feel some relief, even if only for a time. A pair of cargo droids wheeled past, beeping in droid speak. Bolin stepped closer to her and lowered his voice, as if discussing a conspiracy. So what is happening in the Hall of the High Council? We heard the negotiations would continue. How can Darnala justify that? We should be planning a counterattack. The entire Sith delegation should be taken into custody. Kivo put his hand on the hilt of his lightsaber and mouthed something in Rodian that Aaron took to be agreement. The Rodian looked around as if concerned someone might have overheard. Aaron felt the creeping pressure of their suppressed anger, their disappointment. They felt betrayed, deceived. 
She heard in their words the echo of her own thoughts and started to utter agreement. But before the words had cleared her lips, she saw how the words, the thoughts, if given free reign, would fragment the Jedi Order. For the first time, the consequences of her decision struck her. But even as they did, she knew she could make no other choice. Hers was the sacrifice. Other Jedi, however, could not make the same choice or the Order would disintegrate. Trust that Master Garnala knows what she is doing, she said. Volan made a dismissive gesture and went on as if Aaron had not spoken. There are many of us ready to act, Aaron. If we can coordinate with the surviving members of the Order on Coruscant, we can... Volan, Aaron said, her voice soft but her intent sharp. He stopped talking, met her eyes. Do as Master Darnala says. You must, or the Order falls. Do you understand? But negotiating with the Sith after this is madness. We are at our weakest. We must retake the initiative. Do as she says, Volan. I should not even have to say that. She spoke in a firm, clear voice to break the conspiratorial spell that Volan and Kivo had cast with their whispers. You took an oath. Both of you did. Do you intend to break it? Volan colored. Kivo shifted on his feet and dropped his eyes. No... Bolin said. Aaron was swimming in Bolin's frustration, and her own. She felt like a hypocrite. Good, she said, and touched his shoulder. Things will work out. The Council knows what it is doing. We are an instrument of the Republic, Bolin. We will do what is best for the Republic. I hope you are right, Bolin said, sounding unconvinced. Kibo nodded agreement. Aaron could take no more of her own falsity. I must go. Be well, Vaughn. And you, Kivo. May the Force be with you both. Her recitation of the familiar parting seemed to reassure them. And you, Vaughn said. Be well, Aaron Lanier. Kivo said in a high-pitched basic. You still haven't said where you are going, Vaughn said. No, I haven't, Aaron said. It's... personal. She turned and headed for her ship. As she walked, she activated her comlink and hailed her astromech. T-6, get the ship ready for launch. The droid acknowledged receipt and queried about a flight plan. None, Aaron said, and the droid let out a long-suffering beep. When she reached the landing bay, T-6, the dome of his orange head sticking out of the PT-7's droid socket, beeped a greeting. The Raven Starfighter was already in pre-launch, and the hum of the warming engine coils made the pad vibrate under her feet. She stood there for a time, staring at the ladder that led into her cockpit, listening to the hum of the engines, thinking that if she got in and took off, she could never come back. She thought back to the pain she felt when Master Zalo had died. She had felt it physically, a searing shock in her abdomen, that burned away doubt. Closing her eyes, she inhaled deeply a new clean breath and shed her outer Jedi robes, the robes she'd earned under Master Zalo's tutelage. She could not avenge him as a Jedi. She could and should avenge him as his friend. What are you doing, Aaron? Bolin called from behind her. She turned to see that Bolin and Kivo had followed her to her ship. Volan wore a concerned frown. Are you following me? Aaron asked. 
Yes. Don't, she said. What are you doing, Aaron? She put one hand on the ladder to her cockpit. I already told you, Volan. Something for Master Zalo. But your robes... I don't understand. She could offer no explanation that would satisfy him. She turned, climbed the ladder to the cockpit, and pulled on her helmet. Thankfully, T-6 held any questions it might have had. Volan and Kivo walked toward the ship. Aaron felt Volan's alarm. His uncertainty. He stopped when he reached Aaron's robes. He looked as if he were standing over a grave. Perhaps he knew what it meant that Aaron had left him there. Tell Master Darnala I am sorry. She called to him. Tell her, Volan. Volan and Kivo did not come any closer. It was as though the discarded robes demarcated some boundary they could not cross. Sorry for what? Volan called. Aaron, please tell me what you're doing. Why are you leaving your robes? She will understand, Volan. He will. She lowered the transparisteel canopy on the cockpit and could not hear whatever Volan said in response. The engines grew louder, and Volan stood on the landing pad, staring up at Aaron. Kivo stood beside him, his dark eyes on Aaron's robes. Get us out of here, T6, she said. Set a course for Volta, in the mid-rim. She knew someone there once. She hoped he was still there. If anyone could get her to Coruscant, it was the Z-Man. The droid beeped agreement, and the Raven's engines lifted it from the pad. She looked down one last time to see Volan gathering her robes with the same delicacy he might use to bear a fallen comrade. Malgus replayed the exchange with Adras and Angril again and again in his mind. His anger remained unabated when he stepped off the lift onto the roof of the Senate building and strode toward his transport, ignoring the guards who saluted him as he stalked past. The transport pilot waited on the lowered landing ramp. You received a location from Darth Angro? Malgus asked the pilot. A hospital? Yes, my lord. Take me there. He boarded the transport. The doors whispered closed, and the ship soon lifted off into the hazy destruction of Coruscant's night sky. They did not have far to fly. In under a quarter hour, the pilot's voice carried over the intercom. Coming up on the facility now, my lord. Where shall I set down? Below, Malgus saw the multi-storied rectangle of the medical facility. Swoops, air cars, speeders, and medical transports crowded the artificially lit landing pad on its roof. Dozens of people moved among the vehicles. Doctors, nurses, medics, the wounded. Bodies lay on gurneys here and there. On the ground level, the scene was much the same. Vehicles and people clotted the artery of the road, and a mass of people thronged the main entrance to the facility. Set down at ground level, Malgus ordered. Some of the people on the roof noticed the transport's imperial markings. Faces stared skyward, uncertain, frightened, and a few people ran for the lifts. One tripped over a gurney and fell. Another ran into a medic and knocked him flat. Darth Angrel temporarily commandeered this hospital to triage Imperial wounded, the pilot said over the intercom. They've all been moved to Steadfast by now. Not all of them, Malgus said, but not loudly enough to be heard over the intercom. 
There are a lot of people down there, my lord. I don't see a clear spot to land. Malgus stared down at them, his rage bubbling. Land! They will move. The transport wheeled around, hovered, and began to descend. The crowd below parted as the ship neared the Duracrete. Malgus could hear the shouting of the crowd through the bulkheads. My lord, should I send for some troops to guard you? I do not require a guard. Keep the ship secure. I will not be long. Malgus pressed the switch that opened the side door of the transport, and a cacophony of sirens and angry shouts poured through the opening. Malgus, his own anger more than a match for that of the crowd, discarded his cloak, revealing a scarred face and a respirator, and stepped out onto the landing ramp. Upon seeing him, the crowd fell mute. Only the sirens continued to howl. A sea of faces stared up at him, pale in the streetlights, frightened, smeared with dust and blood, but above all, angry. Their collective rage and fear washed over him. He stood before it, eyeing one of them after another. None could hold his gaze. He walked down the ramp and into their midst. They gave way before him. The moment he put his foot on the road, the shouting renewed. Monster! Murderer! We need medical supplies! He is alone! Kill him! Coward! His presence among them focused their rage. As the tumult grew, he could not distinguish individual words. He heard only a single prolonged hate-filled roar, a wave of fists and bared teeth. It echoed his own emotion, fed it, amplified it. From somewhere ahead, a fist-sized piece of duracrete arced over the crowd toward him. Without moving, he stopped it in mid-flight with the force. He let it hang suspended in the air for a moment so the crowd could see it, before he used the force to crush it into pieces. The crowd went silent again as the pebbles and dust rained down on the road, on their heads. Who threw that? Malgus asked. The heat of his anger stoked. Sirens wailed. A cough from somewhere. Fearful eyes everywhere. Malgus raised his voice. I said, who threw that? No response. The crowd's anger turned to anxiety. Disperse, Malgus said, his own anger building as theirs receded. No! Perhaps sensing his anger, those near him started to back away. Some at the fringe of the crowd turned and fled. Most held their ground, though they looked uncertainly at one another. We have family inside. I need care, someone else shouted. Malgus fell into the force as his brewing anger bubbled to the surface. I said, disperse. When the crowd did not respond to his demand, he slammed a fist into his palm and let anger-fueled power explode outward from his body. The scream sounded as the blast shoved everything away from him in all directions. Bodies flew back, slammed into one another, into the walls, against them through windows. The transport he rode on lurched from the blast. The doors of the medical facility flew from their mounts and crashed to the ground. The sirens continued to wail. Partially vented, he came back to himself. Moans and pained whimpers sounded from all around him. A child was crying. 
Bodies lay scattered about like so many ragdolls. Shattered glass covered the ground. Speeders and swoops lay on their sides. Loose papers stirred in the wind. Unmoved, Malgus walked the now clear path into the medical facility. Inside, patients and visitors cowered behind chairs, desks, one another. Malgus's breathing was the loudest sound in the room. No one dared look at him. Where are the Jedi? Someone said. The Jedi are dead in their temple, where I left them. There is no one to save you. Someone wept. Another moaned. Malgus found an overweight human man in the pale blue uniform of a hospital worker and pulled him to his feet by his shirt. I am looking for a Twilic woman with a scar on her throat. She suffered two blaster wounds and was brought here earlier today. Her name is Alina. The man's eyes darted around as if they were seeking escape from his head. I don't know of any Twilic. I can check the logs. If harm has come to her here... A heavyset nurse, her red hair pulled back into a tight bun, rose from behind a desk. Her uniform looked like a blue tent on her stout body. Freckles dotted her face. I know the woman you mean. I can take you to her. Malgus cast the man to the floor and followed the nurse through the corridors. The air smelled of antiseptic. Walls and floors were clean white or silver. Staff and medical droids hurried through the halls, barely noticing Malgus, despite his disfigurement. A female voice over the intercom almost continually called doctors to this or that treatment room, or announced codes in various places in the facility. Malgus and the nurse took a lift up to a treatment ward, walking past rooms overcrowded with patients. A woman's crying carried through the hall. Moans of pain sounded from other rooms. A team of surgeons hurried past, their faces hidden behind masks spattered with blood. The nurse did not look at Malgus when she spoke. The Twilic woman was dropped at the doors by an unmarked transport. We did not realize she was imperial. Malgus grunted. <laughs> you would not have treated her, had you known? The nurse stopped, turned on her heel, and stared Malgus in his scarred face. Of course we would have treated her. We are not savages. Malgus did not miss the woman's subtle emphasis on we. He decided to allow the nurse her moment of defiance. Her spirit impressed him. Just take me to her. Elena lay in a bed in a small treatment room with three other patients. One of them, an elderly man, was curled up in a fetal position on the bed, moaning, his sheets bloody. Another, a middle-aged woman with a lacerated face, watched Malgus and the nurse enter, her expression vacant. The third appeared to be asleep. A fluid line was hooked to Alina's unwounded arm, and several cables... Cables connected her to monitoring equipment. The facility must have been stretched to use such dated technology. Her blaster wounds, at least, had been treated and bandaged. The arm with the wounded shoulder had been stabilized in a sling. Alina saw him, sat up, and smiled. He realized that she was the only person in the galaxy who smiled when she saw him. Veritith, she said, seeing her face 
and hearing her voice affected him more than he liked. The anger drained out of him as if he had a hole in his heel. Relief took its place, and he did not fight it, though he realized that he had let his feelings for her grow dangerously strong. When he looked at Alina, he was looking at his own weakness. Angle's words bounced around his consciousness. Passions can lead to mistakes. He had to have her. And he had to stay true to the Empire. He had to square the circle. He resolved to find a way. He went to her bedside, touched her face with his calloused hand, and started disconnecting her from the fluid line and cables. You will be treated aboard my ship in proper facilities. A man's voice from behind him said, You there! Stop! You can't do that! Malgus looked over his shoulder to see a male nurse standing in the doorway. The man quailed when he saw Malgus's visage, but he held his ground. She's not cleared for discharge. The man started into the room as if to stop Malgus, but the female nurse who had led Malgus to Alina interposed her wide body. Leave them be, Tal. They are leaving. But... Leave it alone. Malgus could not see the fat nurse's face, but he imagined her trying with her expression to communicate to the male nurse that Malgus was a Sith. He asked Alina, Can you walk? Before she could answer, he scooped her up into his arms. I can walk, she said half-heartedly. He ignored her, brushed past the nurses and into the corridor. For a time, Alina looked into the rooms they passed, at the wounded, the dying. But soon it became too much, and she buried her head in Malgus's chest. Malgus enjoyed the feel of her in his arms, the warmth she radiated, the musky smell of her. You are thoughtful, she whispered. The feel of her breath on his ear sent pangs of desire through him. I am thinking of geometry, of squares and circles. That's an odd train of thought. Perhaps not as odd as you think. When they exited the facility, she saw the dozens of bodies strewn about the ground. Medical teams hovered over several, treating their wounds. Faces turned to Malgus, eyes wide. But no one said a word as he walked toward the transport. What happened here to these people? It was not like this when I arrived. Malgus said nothing. They are afraid of you. They should be. When they got aboard the transport, Malgus instructed the pilot to fly them to Valor, the orbiting cruiser he commanded. Then he laid Alina down on a reclinable couch and covered her with a blanket. She touched his hand as he tucked her in. There is gentleness in you, Veridin. He pulled his hand away from her and stood. If you ever call me Veridin in public again, I will kill you. Do you understand? Her smile melted in the heat of his anger. She looked as if he had punched her in the stomach. She sat up on her elbow. Why are you saying this? His voice came out loud and harsh. Do you understand? Yes, yes. She threw off the blanket, rose, and stood before him, her body quaking. But why are you so angry? Why? He stared into her lovely face, swallowed, and shook his head. His anger was only partly her fault. He was angry at Adras, Angrel, 
the Emperor himself. She was just a convenient focus for it. You must do as I ask, Alina, he said more softly. Please. I will, Marcus. She stepped forward, raised a hand and traced the ruined lines written in the skin of his face. Her touch put a charge in him. I love you, Marcus. She peeled away his respirator to reveal the ruins of his mouth. Do you love me? He licked his scarred lips, his thoughts whirling. Again, no words coming. You don't have to answer, she said, smiling, her voice soft. I know that you do. Zirid checked his appearance in the small mirror in the ship's refresher and chided himself for neglecting to shave. He activated the ship's maintenance droid and stepped out into the bustle of the docks. Cargo carts and droids whipped past at breakneck speeds, signal horns clearing the path before them. Treaded droids motored along the walkways. Crew members and dock workers plied their trade, loading and unloading crates of cargo with the help of crane droids. One of the dockmasters, a fat human with a bald head but a long beard and mustache, walked among the chaos, occasionally shouting an order to someone on the dock, occasionally mouthing something into his comlink. He carried a huge torque wrench in one hand and looked as if he wanted to whack something or someone with it. The air smelled faintly of vented gas and engine exhaust, but mostly it smelled like the lake. The city of Yinta Lake ringed the largest freshwater lake on the planet, Lake Yinta. Geothermal vents kept the water warm even in the winter, and the differential between the water temperature and the autumn air caused the lake to sweat steam, so the air always felt thick, greasy, and reminded Zirid of decay. And every time he returned, he felt as though the city had decomposed a little more in his absence. Yinta Lake had begun as an unnamed winter getaway for the planet's wealthy, those who made their fortunes in arms manufacturing, the mansions forming a thin ring around the lakeshore. Back then, the ring had been called the Wealth Belt. Over time, the presence of the wealthy had attracted a middling-sized spaceport to bring off-world goods to the on-world money. That had brought workers, then merchants, then the not-so-wealthy, then the very poor. And by then, the unnamed vacation spot had become Yinta, a town, and it had not stopped growing since. Now it was a metropolis, Yinta Lake, an accretion disk of people and buildings that collected around the gravitational pull of the lake. In time, shipping had polluted the lake's water, the wealthy had mostly fled, and the city had begun a slow spiral into decrepitude. The once grand mansions on the shore of the lake had been sold off to developers and converted to cheap housing. The wealth belt had become slums and loading docks. Zirid had grown up in the slums, smelling the acrid, rotting odor of the lake every day of his childhood. He had provided better for his daughter, but not by much. The deep bass boom of a horn carried across the city. The call of one of the enormous flatbed cargo ships that moved goods and people across the lake and up and down the river that fed it. Zirid smiled when he heard it. He'd awakened to that sound almost every day of his childhood. He stepped into the tumult, feeling oddly at home and very much looking forward to seeing his daughter.
From the haircut, muscular build, and upright posture, Vrath made the pilot as former military. Vrath, too, was ex-military, having served in the Imperial Infantry. The man smiled as he walked, and Vrath found that he liked the man immediately. Too bad he'd probably have to kill him. Holding the nanodroid solution dispenser in a slack arm, Vrath knifed through the crowd toward the pilot. He cut in front of him, slowing him, just another body in the press, and squeezed a dollop of the suspension on the ground at their feet. Vrath pasted on a fake grin and held up his other hand in a frantic wave to no one. Ruber! Ruber, over here! He hurried off as if to meet someone, but watched the pilot sidelong throughout. The pilot never even looked down, did not seem to notice Vrath at all. Suspecting nothing, the man stepped in the oily suspension Vrath had left on the floor before him. Others stepped in it afterward, but that would not matter. In moments, all traces of it were gone. Vrath fell in behind the pilot and took the targeted nano-activator from his pack. Zirin should not have been smiling, and certainly should not have been at ease. He knew, as he always did, that he was one mistake, one unlucky break away from someone discovering Era and using her against him. Or worse, harming her. The thought made him sick to his stomach. He could not let himself get sloppy. He hopped on the back of a droid-driven cargo cart and rode it until he neared one of the port's exits. The spaceport and all the vehicles in it rusted in the moisture-rich air of Yinta Lake. The brown smears on walls and in corners looked like bloodstains. The exit doors slid open, and he hopped off the cargo cart. The collective voice of the streets hit him immediately. The shouts of air taxi drivers vying for fares. Into Lake had to have more taxis than any other city in the Midway. Street vendors hawking all manner of foods, vehicle horns, the rush of engines. Ain't you the inner ring, sir? said one of the taxi drivers, a tiny slip of a man. Hop right in. Lois Rachel Yinka, sir, said another, a gray-haired old-timer, cutting in front of the first. Vine fish, fresh off the grill, shouted a vendor. Right here, right here, sir. To his right, a Zeltron woman, perhaps lovely once, but now just haggard, leaned against a wall. When she smiled, she showed the stained teeth of a spice addict. He winced. Shame warmed his cheeks. Only the hundred thousand in his pocket and what it could do for Era kept him on course. Air cars and speeders lined the street, even a few wheeled vehicles. He pushed through the throng of pedestrians and picked his way through the buzz of traffic to a public comm station across the street. Once the pilot had cleared the spaceport, Vrath surreptitiously pointed the activator at him and powered it on. The nanodroids adhering to the pilot's boot came to life. The press of another button synced the activator to the particular signature of the droids on the pilot, and only those droids. He did not want to pick up any of the others that had adhered to other pedestrians. The bodies of the tracking nanodroids, about the size of a single cell, and engineered in a hook shape, would contract to embed themselves into the pilot's boot sole. From there, they would respond to Brat's ping from a distance of up to ten kilometers. Their power cells would keep them responsive for three standard days. More than enough, Brath knew. 
The exchange had to get the Angspice to Coruscant quickly, or the market would be lost. He'd be surprised if he didn't try to move the spice tonight. He watched the pilot cross the street and head to a public comm station. Turning his ear in the direction of the station, Frath activated his audio implant. Zerit closed the doors of the station for privacy, cutting off the outside noise, and tapped in Nat's number. He never called from his ship's comm unit or his personal comm link for fear that someone in the exchange was monitoring him. An excess of paranoia had saved his life more than once, most recently on Ord Mantell. Nat did not answer, so he left her a message. Nat, it's Zerid. I'm on planet. If you get this soon, bring Era and meet me at Carson's Park in an hour. I can't wait to see you both. He disconnected and hailed a taxi. A thin Bothan driver, his face reminiscent of an equine, stared at him in the rearview mirror. Where to? Just drive. Stay low. Your credits, pal. Even from afar, Wrath was able to listen through the synthplast walls of the comm station. By the time the call was finished, he had a name for the pilot, Zerid, and names of people the pilot appeared to care about, Nat and Era. He climbed into an air taxi and monitored the tracking droid activator. The droid driver looked back at him. Where to, sir? Carson's Park, eventually, Brath said. But for now, follow my instructions precisely. Yes, sir. Zerid had shown discretion in calling Nat from a public comm station, so Wrath expected him to take a winding route, maybe change vehicles a few times. He settled in for a long ride. Even if he lost him, he knew how to find him again. The air car lifted off the ground and merged with traffic. Zerid had the driver take a series of abrupt turns for about ten minutes. Throughout, he kept his eyes behind him, trying to see if anyone was following. For a time, he thought another taxi might have been tailing him, but it fell away and did not return. The glowing sign for a casino he knew, the Silver Falcon, shone ahead. Right here, driver. He paid the boffin, popped out, headed into the casino's front door and out its back. There he hailed another taxi and went through the same exercise. Still, no one that he could see. He breathed easier. He hailed another taxi, one that could house a hover chair, this one droid-driven. Where to, sir? Even the droid showed some rust from the air. Its head squeaked when it turned. I need to purchase a hover chair. The droid paused for a moment while its processor searched the city directory. Of course, sir. The taxi lifted off and took him to a medical supply reseller. Medical devices filled the cavernous warehouse, tended to by a single elderly man, who reminded Zerid of a scarecrow. There, 87,000 credits got Zerid a used hover chair, sized for a seven-year-old, and a crash course on how to operate it. Zerid could not stop smiling while the wholesaler's utility droid loaded the chair in the back of the taxi. Don't see bearer cards all that often, the old man said, eyeing Zerid's method of payment. Credits are credits, Zerid said. He knew what the man must have been thinking. Crow... Ah, uh, you used to be a nurse, you know. 
That chair is a good device. She'll love it, Siren said. The old man rubbed his hands together. If that's all then, sir, I'll just need you to fill out a few forms. The mirror card is untraceable, as you know. Can we do it another time? Zirid said, and started walking for the door. I really have to go. The old man tried his best to keep up the pace. But, sir, this is a regulated medical device. Even for resale, I need your name and on-planet address. Uh, sir, please, sir. Zirid hopped into the taxi. I'll come back tomorrow, he said, and closed the cab door. Carson's Park, he said to the droid. Very good, sir. All right, Space Cadets, we just finished listening to Part 5 of Deceive. And let me tell you, this story is truly out of this galaxy crazy. I was completely engrossed in the situation the whole time. The Star Wars universe is simply epic, and I can't even imagine what's next. And all I know is that I am strapped in and ready for it. But hold on, we still got to get to the court of this week, and it comes to us from Carol Burnett. She said, when you have a dream, you got to grab it and never let go. This is a powerful quote that emphasizes the importance of pursuing your dreams with determination and never giving up until you achieve them. It encourages you to pursue your passions with consistency in the face of obstacles. Take my friend Alexander. He dreamed of starting his own fashion line. He had always been fascinated with fashion and had a keen eye for design. He spent countless hours sketching designs and studying fashion trends, but he lacked the financial resources to start his own business. Despite the challenges, Alexander held on to his dreams, knowing that it was what he truly wanted, and sought out mentorship from experienced entrepreneurs. He also networked and collaborated with other young designers, learning from their experience and sharing his own ideas. There was times when Alexander felt discouraged and doubted his ability to succeed, but he held on to this quote. It reminded him of the importance of consistency and determination in achieving his goals. In 2007, my friend Alexander Wang launched his own fashion line, highlighting his unique design and style. His clothing line gained popularity, and he was soon featured in the top fashion magazines and was invited to participate in fashion shows. This quote is a powerful reminder to you to pursue your passions with determination and consistency. It encourages us to take risks, work hard, and never give up until we achieve our goals. It reminds us that success is just not about the end results, but also about the journey and the lessons you learn along the way. So I think that's it for this episode. Join us next week for more jaw-dropping and white-knuckling action as we journey through part six of Star Wars The Sea. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archive. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Kenai Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and it was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Deceived was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host Kyle and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> <laughs>